0: as i think all of you or at least most of you are aware we've been looking at this concept of how or looking at the concept or the subject of how old testament israel was governed and what the relationship is between the way that the old covenant nation of israel was governed and and the way that modern nation states ought to be governed what is What is God's intent and design? Are we to be governed exactly the same way as Israel? Are we to be governed a different way? Where might there be similarities or dissimilarities? Where is there continuity, discontinuity, so forth? And we've been considering some biblical foundations, and I've been trying, as best as I can, to limit my comments to implications and applications for the ancient Old Testament world as I've been trying to lay some of these foundations over the last couple of weeks. Tonight, I will try to bring over three simple and preliminary implications and applications to modern times. Of course, there is going to be more that we will get into in the weeks ahead. I'm not gonna resolve every question you might have tonight. But I will endeavor to bring it into modern times tonight and try to give a basic overview of uh, the way that we ought to understand things. And I will endeavor tonight to take one more step, as I've been just simply taking one step at a time as we make our way through this subject, instead of dumping a whole truckload of political theology on you any one given night, and assuming that you're going to take it all in. So... I will simply try tonight again to just take one step, bring over three simple and preliminary implications and applications to modern times tonight. Now first, by way of review, we've already seen over the last couple of weeks, I trust I've made the case sufficiently over the last two Sunday nights. If you missed the sermons, you can go back and listen to them online. But I believe I've made the case sufficiently over the last couple of Sunday nights that even Pagan, ungodly governments, with only general revelation, are legitimate by virtue of having been instituted by God. The fact that God intends for men to rule over one another is latent in seed form in Genesis chapter one, where God gives instructions to Adam in Genesis 1:26. 20a to have dominion over everything and to fill the earth and subdue it Clearly that's not the work for one man Clearly that is instructions therefore for the whole human race and if the whole human race is to exercise dominion and To subjugate and subdue the whole earth. There's going to need to be cooperation and by implication we can work out the fact that there are authority structures implicitly assumed, which are going to be developed and arise, and that that is going to be the way, the manner in which Adam is going to be able to actually accomplish this. It's made explicit later in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 4, that in fact it is God's intention for men to rule over one another. In Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 4, we read this let every person be subject to the governing authorities listen for there is no authority except from god and those that exist have been instituted by god therefore whoever resists the authorities resists what god has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment etc uh, etc cetera, et cetera. i'm going to skip down to verse 4 for he is god's servant for your good so It's not simply the fact that men have just taken it upon themselves to subjugate one another and rule over one another and God sits in heaven and disapproves of it all. Rather, it is actually the case that men rule over one another by God's appointment and by God's institution. And of course, the immediate context of Romans was the Roman Empire, which was a pagan and ungodly empire. And yet Paul insists that The emperor was God's servant and had been appointed by God. We also have seen over the last couple of weeks that kings outside Israel are recognized as legitimate, including the Canaanite kings, including the governor of Judea who was Pilate at the time that Jesus was Crucified and and many others throughout Scripture, they're all recognized as King so and so or whatever their title might be. We also see explicitly in Deuteronomy 2 and verse 5, which I probably should have read last week but didn't, an example of God giving legitimacy. Explicitly to another nation besides Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, beginning at verse 4, the Lord says to Moses, Command the people, you are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land, no, not so much as for the sole of your foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. The teaching of Scripture, and this is just an explicit case study, is that every nation that exists has been allotted their legitimate place by God. And the government of those nations, however pagan and ungodly they might be, are actually God's servants, instituted by and appointed by God. Now I will present the first implication for the modern world of what we've seen in the Bible so far, after reviewing all that, which is simply this. The state exists legitimately independent of the church. That's it. Simple, the state exists by God's appointment and therefore legitimately, irrespective of whether there is a true church in its constituency or not, the absence of a true church does not invalidate the state. We know that from the Old Testament nations around the world, outside Israel, who did not possess special revelation and who had no true religion, and yet are deemed legitimate by God. Therefore, we cannot argue that the church confers authority upon the state, as if the state cannot exist without the church's approbation, approval, commandment, endorsement. Whether or not the church endorses the state, the state still exists. The state is still legitimate, independent of the church. The state does exist apart from the church. And just as the church cannot confer authority upon the state, neither can a church's pronouncements pronouncements invalidate the legitimacy of the state's authority over civic matters within its constituency. We know this from the nature of the case, since a party that has no place in conferring authority has no place in taking it away. So whatever God, whatever authority God has given the state, the state has, whether the church recognizes it or not. God is the one who has given whatever authority it is that He has given. And only God can take away that measure of authority from the state. Again, Jesus recognizes Pilate's legitimate authority in Matthew 19 to decide his case as the one whom God had raised up to govern Judea at that time. Even though, of course, God did not condone the way in which Pilate exercised his authority in that case, handing over Jesus to be crucified. In the same way, if I can put it like this, the church must recognize Pilate's legitimate jurisdiction, even in cases in which she might speak against his misuse of power over that jurisdiction. So in other words, you can have jurisdiction over a particular thing and make a poor decision and misuse your authority over that jurisdiction. It doesn't mean that you didn't have the legitimate authority to make a decision in that case. The jurisdiction is still there, even if the jurisdiction is misused. So to bring it into the modern world, present day, present day North Korea Is a legitimate state. So is China and Russia and Canada and Barbados and whatever other nations you might call to mind. Well, what if they're not governed by a biblical worldview? Nevertheless, their governors are still God's servants for the civic good of those in their constituency, and they retain legitimate authority to make laws to that end. Their authority is real and valid. Their borders are real and valid. They have authority over civic institutions within their jurisdiction. God does not look at the world and say, Kim Jong-un is no legitimate leader at all. Nor does God endorse the discontented Canadians' statement that they wove on waved on flags as they made their way to Ottawa in the truckers protest, F Trudeau. God sees Kim Jong-un and Trudeau and whoever else as legitimate rulers of their respective jurisdictions raised up by him, appointed in his providence for the present day, for this moment, with respect to civil matters for the temporal good of their people. Now, if you know anything about North Korea and the miserable conditions there, no doubt there will be a day of reckoning for Kim Jong-un. And there will likewise be, not to put them on the exact same level here, but there will be a reckoning from Mr. Trudeau also, for the ways that they have failed to do civic good to their people. And in many ways have actually acted against the civic good of their people. Though God does not implicitly endorse any and every decision they make with respect to their jurisdiction. Nevertheless, God endorses their office as legitimate and their right to govern in civic affairs, in principle, again, even if he does not always endorse the manner in which they use that authority. Here's what we need to understand. The church must, therefore, if God recognizes that legitimate authority, the legitimacy of their office, the church must also recognize the legitimacy of their office. Not governing by a biblical worldview. Not being guided by God's Word. Not using legitimate power for the end for which it was intended and given. None of these things invalidate the jurisdiction the state's jurisdiction over civil matters within its constituency. So, to summarize this first point, the state exists legitimately independent of the church. Whether or not the church endorses the state's authority, whether or not the church recognizes the state's authority, the state nevertheless has authority from God over civil matters within its constituency. The state exists legitimately independent of the church. Here's the second point. I got three, right? That was the first one. Here's the second one. Which is a corollary of the first. The church exists legitimately independent of the state. When Ahab the wicked king was ruling over Israel... And his evil wife Jezebel was trying to exterminate all the prophets. God sent an angel to feed Elijah in First Kings chapter 19. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace in Babylon, there was seen a fourth being, one like a son of man, walking around in there with them, and they were miraculously preserved. When Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, God stopped the mouths of the lions. And don't forget the very origin story of ancient Israel. Yahweh endorsed Israel's rejection of Egypt's gods and Israel's embrace of himself. And as I read to you from Jude verse 5, Jesus saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Which means that there were people in Egypt who, in in some sense, were in Pharaoh's jurisdiction and in another sense belonged to another king and another kingdom at the same time. In the midst, then, of an ungodly, pagan, and hostile state, whether it be apostate Israel, whether it be Babylon, whether it be Egypt whether it be North Korea, whether it be Canada, whether it be Barbados. The church retains its legitimacy. And God is ever on her side. The state does not confer legitimacy upon the church. And the state, therefore, cannot take it away. So just as God has granted the state a certain legitimacy... Which the church cannot invalidate or take away. Likewise, God has granted the church legitimacy, which the state cannot invalidate or take away. Throughout human history, even in the last two millennia since Bible times, we have seen various governments try to act like their kingdom is the only kingdom. Like there is only Caesar, or there is only Pharaoh. And its citizens swear sole allegiance to their king. But there is another kingdom. And there is another king. And he does not require Caesar's endorsement. Nor Pharaoh's. Nor any president. Nor any prime minister's endorsement to be a legitimate king. Neither may the boundaries of his kingdom be pushed back. To what the rulers of this world consider to be acceptably small and non-threatening. Jesus reigns. And his ambition is not parochial, but universal. As we so often say, Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does its successive journeys run. And while the reality that the secular state is legitimate in its own right might make some Christians uncomfortable, the proclamation that there is another kingdom which is here to take over might make some non-Christians and has in history made some non-Christians uneasy and uncomfortable. Between now and the day when the last trumpet blows and as Revelation 11:15 15 puts it the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever between this day and between that day we find ourselves in a situation where there are Fundamentally two kingdoms operating concurrently. One kingdom is typically called by theologians the common kingdom. The other kingdom is often called by theologians the redemptive kingdom. George Gillespie, one of the framers of the Westminster Confession, calls it the mediatorial kingdom though. And I prefer that language and will use it henceforth for the most part as we continue in this little subseries. And the reason why I prefer and the reason I will, I will adopt that and use that is because, in my opinion, it makes it clearer what the distinction between the two kingdoms is. You see, we recognize God's sovereignty. There's not this little part of the world over which God reigns. This little blue building. And you know God is God is not God down by the Rubus station, but here in this little blue building, God is God. Right? Perish the thought that God that God rules over this tiny little subset of everything. We recognize that God rules over all. God is sovereign. God rules inside the church, God rules outside the church. But God governs and God rules in different ways. And God rules over the common kingdom. Believers and unbelievers alike by means of the state. God rules over the mediatorial kingdom. How? You guessed it. By means of the one mediator. One mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. As 1 Timothy 2 5 puts it. So, God is working providentially in the common kingdom by means of raising up and and putting down and switching in and switching out whosoever he pleases according to his sovereign will in order to bring about whatever his purposes are for mankind. In, In and over and through and in spite of the happenings in the common kingdom, God is ruling. But he has appointed the state as his servant, for this temporal civic good of Adam's race. But God rules through his mediator in another kingdom which operates concurrently, the kingdom of Christ. Right? And this mediatorial kingdom outlasts and takes over according to Revelation eleven fifteen all other kingdoms. But in the meantime, all other kingdoms are not invalid or illegitimate. We talked this morning about patiently awaiting God's timing with respect to dispensing justice or perhaps bringing us out of a difficult situation. And and that same patience is called for in this case also. God's program culminates with the kingdom of this world becoming the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, as it says in Revelation eleven fifteen. But no one knows the day or the hour, as Matthew twenty four and verse thirty six puts it. In the meantime, between here and there, Christians are citizens of two kingdoms the common kingdom. And the mediatorial kingdom. And we must learn to operate in both kingdoms as good citizens. We render obedience to the state wherever possible. Under God. But we recognize that we are at the same time citizens of another kingdom also. And that there may be a time when we have to say, like Peter and John... In Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. We don't swear sole allegiance to the common kingdom, right? And though Jesus expects us to follow him ultimately, he expects us to follow him by living in the common kingdom as good citizens. And so so in that qualified way, Jesus doesn't expect us to negate the fact that we are citizens of the common kingdom also. So we shouldn't live as if we're only in the common kingdom and not citizens of Christ's kingdom. But we need to recognize that by God's appointment, we're not only citizens of Christ's kingdom, but we're also citizens of the common kingdom. As we make our way through whatever remains of human history until the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, whatever difficulties we encounter trying to live in two kingdoms, we need to affirm the legitimacy of each and do our best to be good citizens, recognizing the providential appointment of whatever particular government we may happen to find ourselves under with respect to the common kingdom. Recognize these governments to be God's servant for our civic good, whom we may not resist without resisting God, and yet also, at the same time, recognizing the kingship of Christ over another kingdom, which will one day outlast and take over the constituency in which we live. Sometimes the common kingdom provides us with favorable conditions to be citizens of Christ's kingdom. And sometimes it doesn't. But whatever the case, we know that Jesus has been given an everlasting kingdom. An everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. And that Jesus shall reign where the sun does its successive journeys run and we know that in the meantime God will be to us a mighty fortress in the face of opposition and even persecution in the common kingdom so those are the three simple points trying to sketch it out broadly and bring it into the modern age the state exists legitimately independent of the church The church exists legitimately independent of the state, and there are fundamentally two kingdoms operating concurrently.